0: The baptism of Jesus, which the church commemorates on this Sunday every year in January at this time. It's an event which I have come to, to deeply cherish. I hope for reasons that become obvious. It's, it's also an event which, contrary to what you might think at first glance, is of immense importance for the church and brings to the surface a great deal of what matters in the church's life and ministry. I don't think we tend to, to make those connections when we think about the baptism of Jesus. Now, by way of introduction, just, just by way of introduction, I'm going to give you two reasons why this is an event of great importance and not just a strange thing in the Gospels that you're not quite sure what to do with, which is, I think, how we often feel about Jesus' baptism. First, this event is recorded in all four Gospels. All four Gospels have it. Now, outside of the events in the very last days of Jesus' life, that puts this event in very elite company. A lot of events are recorded in three Gospels. Very few are recorded in four. And secondly, as we shall see, This event is a sort of compressed focal point of the whole history of redemption. Unpacking this thing requires us or could could engage us in the proclamation of a good deal of the whole Bible. Of a good deal of the history of redemption. Just from this text alone, if we wanted to. And so we'll look at the text this morning under seven headings. I know it's over the top. Violates all rules of preaching and teaching. I know, I know. I only do this for the baptism of Jesus because I want you to see the, the, what the condensed luminosity that's present here. Seven, and besides, half of your outline will be filled out when we just get the seven headings. So the seven headings are these. Sacramental Gospel. Sacramental Gospel. And second historical gospel I apologize there's a lot of there's a few big words here but we will describe them third eschatological gospel E S C H A T O L O G I C A L eschatological gospel fourth righteousness And the gospel. Fifth, the gospel of the new creation. Gospel and new creation is the fifth point. Yes, all of this from the baptism of Jesus. And this is an edited list. Sixth, Trinitarian gospel. Trinitarian gospel. And seventh, gospel ordination. Gospel ordination. If it sounds difficult, it's not. It really isn't. It's not that bad. So first, sacramental gospel. Mark's gospel. The text is from Mark chapter 1. The text that was read for the gospel lesson. It opens with the words, the beginning of the gospel of or about Jesus Christ. So for Mark... For Mark, the evangelist, the beginning of the gospel, the place you start when you talk about the gospel is the onset of Jesus' public ministry. You'll notice that in Mark's gospel, there are no genealogies, there are, there, is, there are no angels, there are no wise men, there are no infancy narratives. Mark says, We're going to go right to the gospel, and to begin, the gospel means verse 4 John came baptizing in the wilderness. And so baptism for the evangelist is the very fountainhead of the gospel. He places the ministry of John the baptizer and his account of baptizing our Lord prominently right at the opening of the story. And that tells us something very important about the gospel. It tells us it is a sacramental gospel, that the sacraments matter, that this is a material gospel gospel. That it's not just a set of propositions. Right? The Gospel is not an ideology. It, of course it contains ideas and propositions, but it's embodied, it's enacted. It's, a, it's sealed by the sacraments. And this is why the liturgy, the public worship of the church, is so important. It's a weekly reenactment. It's a drama in which the Gospel is reenacted for you, It's a corporate act of covenant renewal. And so baptism is not an alien or a strange thing, sort of just tacked onto the gospel oddly for Mark. It's where an account of the gospel begins. This is, I think, strange to us. I suspect that most of us have never given an account of the gospel to a friend or an unbeliever that began with baptism. We've never thought, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So that means we're going to have to start with his baptism. We don't make the link. It's the natural link that Mark makes. Notice uh, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. Notice here how the word preaching, the word the proclamation of the word, and the sacrament, baptism, are joined together. The church lives, and we say this often, but here we see it right at the beginning. The church lives by word and sacrament, and they can never be artificially separated. In fact, in this text, John preaches in verse 4, and then he baptizes in verse 5. Then he preaches Christ in verses 7 and 8. And then he baptizes Christ in verse 9. The gospel's a sacramental gospel. Second, historical gospel. Mark starts with this Old Testament citation in verses 2 and 3. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of, a, he, t- he takes a little bit of Isaiah and Malachi and he conflates them together and he, and he cites them. And in that passage that he cites, you can see that the whole history of Israel, culminating in John the Baptist, is a preparation for the gospel. And this tells us that the gospel is a historical gospel. In particular, it's a Jewish gospel. It has to do with the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. It doesn't just spring up from nowhere and it doesn't just drop down from heaven. It's a historical gospel. Jesus is, Jesus cannot be, as we say, ad nauseum, Scandinavian. That's right. Jesus cannot be Scandinavian because the gospel's historical. The third point. This this one might be the hardest one to get, but in many ways the most important is eschatological gospel. So, John the Baptist, he's the last Old Testament prophet. And the scriptures tell us that he's the one who prepares Israel for the dawning day of the Lord. And this is what we mean when we say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. It's a big word, I know, Um, but Mississippi is also a big word, and everybody in here knows what that means. So it's not the size of the word. It's the strangeness of it. I use it a lot, so I want to unpack it here. In many ways, what we say here underwrites the usage of the word for the rest of the year. Um, If you look at the accounts of this event, the baptism of Jesus, you look at them in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, and we looked at the account... Uh, well, we looked at, at some of this material in Luke during Advent. There's a striking feature which stands out. John calls those who are coming out to be baptized. Remember, he calls them a brood of vipers. Who warns you, he says, to flee from the wrath which is to come. And he says the axe is already laid to the root and every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be thrown into the fire. And after me comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so, John's preaching implies that the appearance of the Messiah is a fiery, purging judgment. Jesus is said in those accounts to be ready with his winnowing fan, to clear the threshing floor, and to gather the wheat in his barn, and then to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, John uses these extremely strong words. He piles up these fierce images of a coming judgment. Fire and brimstone preaching to a people who are coming to be baptized. And they're confessing their sins, the text says. And so what's what's going on? Well, John clearly sees the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as the coming judgment. Salvation is always through judgment. And so when Jesus appears and He announces the kingdom of God is at hand, what He is doing is He is bringing the final judgment of the last day forward into history. The end. The end. The Greek word for end or last is eschaton. That's where we get the word eschatology from. It means the end is breaking into time. The end is breaking into time and has broken into time in Jesus Christ. This is why grasping that the gospel is eschatological is so basic to us. It is the future judgment brought into our time. It is the age to come invading this age. Now, something wonderful happens here in our text. And and we didn't look at this at Advent. This is the reason the baptism of Jesus must be proclaimed and preached and celebrated after Advent. So the one who appears, the one who's going to administer the wrath which is to come, the one with the axe laid to the root, the one who baptizes with fire, the one who's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, that one appears on the scene. He is ready to usher in his kingdom. The eschatological judgment is at hand. The fiery preaching of John the Baptist is now about to be realized, and how does the one who's going to realize it appear? Well, he appears, remarkably, as one of us. He's back there, in the line, waiting in line with all of his guilty countrymen, shuffling along with the unwashed masses, ready to submit to John's preaching and baptizing ministry. And this means that Jesus identifies fully with Israel and with you, with you, under John's scathing account of the coming judgment. He stands on your side to bear that judgment. And thus the gospel is an eschatological gospel. Fourth, the gospel and righteousness. So I think if we're honest, we'll admit that the baptism of Jesus creates some problems for us. If it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which verse 4 says it is, If it involves fleeing the wrath to come, then why does Jesus submit to it? It doesn't appear that he should be a candidate for John's baptism. And this was really a scandal. It's been a scandal actually throughout the whole history of the church. People don't know what to do with it, which is why often what we do with the baptism of Jesus is we just just kind of throw it. We don't know what to do with it. But in Matthew's account, when Jesus comes to John, John says, Wait a minute, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? And you might remember what Jesus says there to John. He says, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying something basically like this to John If I'm going to fulfill all the promises concerning the Messiah, and the righteousness of God, which the Messiah brings, then I have to submit to this rite of baptism, John. He's affirming that if God's righteousness is going to be fulfilled, He must identify with us fully and completely. He must be baptized into our sinfulness and our need. By baptized into here, we mean identified with a good substitute for the word baptized or baptism in your Bible is identified with. And so this event teaches us that Jesus is not identified with our corruption and our guilt solely at the cross. But the whole of his life The totality of his existence, what the Reformed tradition calls his active obedience, is for you. It's vicarious. There's a marvelous statement from John Calvin which I love, and he says this From the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of our liberation. It's in your outline. You should know that. From the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price for our liberation. The whole of his suffering is a part of the payment for you and I, for our liberation and redemption. And that's vividly set forth here in his baptism. He lives He lives identified with you so that he can die identified for you. One of the church fathers put it this way. This is also a wonderful citation. Now, this is an early church father. He says this. He says, Even as Christ fulfilled the righteousness of baptism, he fulfilled the righteousness of being born and growing, of eating and drinking of sleeping and relaxing. He also fulfilled the righteousness of experiencing temptation, fear, flight, sadness, as well as suffering, death, and resurrection. That is, according to the requirement of the human nature He took upon Himself, He fulfilled all these acts of righteousness. One long act of righteousness. That's what the incarnate life of Jesus is. He called His death You might remember, when Jesus looks ahead to the cross, He calls His death a baptism. And it's a baptism deeply linked to the baptism we're looking at today. This baptism in water at the hands of John implies that baptism in blood at Calvary. And that baptism in blood fulfills what is in view here in this baptism at the hands of John. And this means that the whole of Jesus' life is a baptism into our corruption, into our darkness, to heal and restore us. He undergoes baptism, and then we are baptized into the baptized one. He is underneath our baptism. Another startling quotation, I think, from Calvin. He says this, He dedicated and He sanctified baptism by His own body, that He might have it in common with us as the firmest bond of the union and fellowship he has deigned to form with us that's another remarkable statement again we tend to come to the baptism of jesus and not we're not quite sure what to do with it calvin says he calvin looks at this event and says Jesus is sanctifying baptism so that he could have it in common with you as the firmest bond of union and fellowship with you. That's how important this event is. Jesus here sanctifies baptism so that baptism could be the firmest grip that he has on you. So here, in our text, Jesus When he stands on that side of the line, he is saying they need cleansing, I will stand with them. I will be their purification. They need repentance, I'll be broken and contrite on their behalf. They confess their sins, I will be numbered with the transgressors. Let their sins be confessed on my head. That's what he's saying by getting in the line. Take their defilement take their uncleanness, take their need, take their situation under the scathing wrath of God which is to come and put it on me. I'll get in the line. This is why this event is of monumental significance in the life of the church. The wrath which is to come, the axe which cuts down the unfruitful trees, the unquenchable fire, Jesus, the righteous judge, says, I'll take it on my own head. I'll bear it myself. That's why this is a vivid picture of the gospel. Because the one who administers the fire and the wrath, who is the judge, decides to become the judged. And it's that righteousness of that whole life which becomes yours in the gospel. That obedience. Fifth point, the gospel and the new creation. Now, next in our text, we have these very familiar, dramatic events. They're in verses 9 through 11. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are torn. The Spirit descends like a dove. The Father declares, you are my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And there's a a rich set of symbolism compressed here, and we should note it. And that's what I want to do on this point. When the Spirit descends as a dove, We're reminded of the Spirit hovering, dove-like, over the original creation. And so Jesus is seen here as the inaugurator of the new creation. He's the new Adam. Did you notice that the Old Testament lesson this morning was from Genesis 1, 1 through 5? Again, we're not making these readings up. They're part of the church's historic lectionary. The church has understood that even as the original word, world was made through water in Genesis 1, the world is remade through the waters of Jesus' baptism. Again, these are instincts, beloved, that we have to cultivate, that we do not have in American evangelical Christianity. Right? Nobody goes to the baptism of Jesus and says, of course, Genesis 1. The baptism of Jesus is the inauguration of the new creation through waters. That's why Genesis 1's the Old Testament lesson on this Sunday. So he's the new Adam in the new creation. The first world was created out of water. The new creation comes through his baptismal waters. The dove also reminds us of the dove which returned to Noah's ark. Jesus bears the waters of judgment. And thus he is the ark of salvation. This is why the Apostle Peter can say that the flood, Noah's flood, is a picture of Christian baptism. That's what what Peter says. So Jesus is not only the new Adam, he's the new Noah. Not only this, the word for the heavens being torn in our text is used in the Old Testament for the dividing of the Red Sea. And so Jesus is depicted here as the new Moses who affects our exodus from sin and bondage. Now you might say that sounds kind of fanciful to me, but it's not at all because in the subsequent narrative, immediately after this baptism, immediately after it in all three gospels, the same spirit which falls upon Jesus drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's what happens next. It's in Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. So what's, what are the Gospel writers saying? They're saying, as Israel was tempted for 40 years and failed, Jesus is tempted for 40 days and nights and prevails. As the heavens were torn, in the, as the sea was torn in the Exodus, the heavens are torn here. And that same Spirit comes upon the new Moses, the new Israel. He's driven into the wilderness and he's faithful where Israel has been disobedient. He is the new faithful Israel. And so in this simple, dramatic descent of the Spirit the, onto the Messiah, He set forth as the new Adam, the new Noah, the new Moses, the new Israel. In short, He's the new creation. He renews all things. Sixth, Trinitarian Gospel. The Father speaks in verse 11. You're the Son whom I love, or my beloved Son. With you I am well Pleased. And so this baptism, remember this baptism is the beginning of the gospel for Mark. It's Trinitarian. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. And so the reason that Christians are baptized into the triune name has its roots right here. Right here in the Trinitarian structure of this baptism. So the gospel from the very beginning is Trinitarian. Often people will say, ah, the Trinity came later. It was a construction of the church. It's artificial. It's really not there in the earliest Christian documents. Well, sure it is. It's right here in the earliest of the earliest Christian testimony. Seventh and final point, gospel ordination. This I hope, will help tie all of these things together. John's Gospel tells us that John the Baptist came baptizing for a purpose. His purpose is that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. In other words, John is saying Jesus is going to be publicly ordained into, empowered for his role as Israel's Messiah by this baptism. Now, we know this because in John's Gospel, when Jesus is asked, you may remember this, he's asked, by what authority do you do these things? And as is his wont, Jesus answers the question with a question. He says, uh, I'll answer you, uh, but first I'm going to ask you this question. And his question is this. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven? Or was it from men? Now the significance of this little exchange is often missed. As if Jesus is just saying, I got a question you can't answer. Remember, Jesus is being asked for his public ministerial authority. By what authority do you preach and teach and heal? He says, I got a question for you. Tell me about the baptism of John. Where did that come from? What what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know about the source of my authority for public ministry, then look at my baptism at the hands of John. And look at the Father's attestation to it in the Spirit. My baptism is my ordination as Israel's Messiah. This is Jesus' ordination day. And in this ordination, this anointing by the Spirit enables Him to live. To live as the new Adam, and the new Noah, and the new Moses, and the new Israel. It's to this event... It's to this event that Jesus is referring when he begins his preaching ministry with the words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to preach. Good news to the, when did that, when did the Spirit of the Lord come upon him and give him this anointing? Right here. So it is indeed fitting That this event is placed immediately after the Advent cycle. Because in it, we're reminded that Jesus, who humbled himself to take up our humanity in the incarnation, which we just finished celebrating, what this text reminds us is he has not yet reached the depths of his humiliation. That's why this is such a moving text, which should stir up the depth of our love for Christ. His descent, his descent does not terminate with Christmas. It continues down and down and down throughout his whole public ministry to descend, to empty himself, to stand with us, to identify with us in all of our alienation and our twisted need. So here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Jesus, the incarnate judge, is unreservedly and forever on your side of the judgment. It's this baptism and his subsequent baptism in blood at Calvary which turn this coming judgment ordeal of which John the Baptist preaches and which we all face, it turns it into the blessed and healing waters of Christian baptism. And when Jesus baptizes us into his baptism, we are by faith united to this one who the text says is well-pleasing to his Father in heaven. And as such, we are fully accepted in the Beloved One. Praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen.